Hey folks, let's spend some time with friends up north. Pat Kreitlow of Up North News is on Lake Minnesota. Kristen Lyerly in OBGYN is on the Fox River. And up on Lake Monaco is Kirk Bangstead of the Monaco Brewing Company. Wherever you are, welcome. You're up north. Won't you let me die? Hello and welcome to the Up North Podcast. I'm Kirk Bankstead. I'm Kristen Lyerly. I'm Pat Kreitlow, and on the show this week, Denise Galmer Hutchison of the Wisconsin Public Education Network will help us cover a few topics related to the many ways Republicans have continued to slowly strangle the life out of public education, dollar by dollar, pupil by pupil, voucher by voucher. But that's that's in a little bit, along with some other topics. First. A quick follow-up to something we discussed last week. All three of us have run for office before, so we're all familiar with nominating petitions. And last week, we described the process. It's pretty basic. It's not easy, but it's basic. And if you don't follow it, you might not qualify to get on the ballot. And that takes us to Tim Michaels, who botched his nominating petitions, which makes sense because, you know, Donald Trump nominated him. So, I mean, nothing's going to go right or competently that way. Um but th- this may be, and I, I mentioned this on the Wait, radio. Yeah. Pat, who is Tim Michaels? He's running for governor as a Republican. Nobody even in the state knows this guy, right? Tim Michaels, the millionaire businessman running for governor who's been Wait, endorsed who by Who lives Donald in Trump. Connecticut instead of Wisconsin, right? Yes. So <laughs> clearly the man pays attention to detail, just not the detail of putting the right address on his nominating petitions. Um, and, and that may sound ticky-tack to you, but... You know, people have been kicked off ballots for, you know, coming up short on signatures, putting in some wrong information. Kanye West was like 14 seconds late, you know, turning in his paperwork. And so he couldn't be on the presidential ballot in 2020. As somebody who liked Tim Michaels, my mailing address is not the same as my street address. I want to be sympathetic to him. But if you're going to be governor, you should you should be able to read the paperwork. I think ultimately... I wouldn't vote to kick him off the ballot, but I don't know. What do you guys, what, what if you were on the election commission guys? What do you think, Kristen? I think a rule is a rule. I mean, we all have to follow the rules. And for me and my profession, we have to take oral board exams. If we mess it up at any point, we have to take it next year and we have to do all the prep over again. That's so, true. you know, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's petty, but it's still a rule. And if it was, if the shoe was on the other foot, you know that they would absolutely be following through with this. You think that if a, a, a Democrat like transposed the numbers on their <laughs> their address, they wouldn't try to kick them off the ballot? Maybe Kirk. So, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a laissez-faire kind of guy, and and I think it's ridiculous that we would kick a guy off the ballot for doing something small like that. But I think I, the bigger picture is that we've become so toxic in our in our politics that, yes, the Republicans would take their the first opportunity to to kick a Democrat off the ballot for any any small little infraction. And so, yeah, I wouldn't kick him off, but I feel like I'm soft. And I think a lot of Democrats are trying try to be understanding and try to do the right thing. And we were often too soft and that gets us in a problem. So I guess I'd have to stick to the letter of the law on this one because those guys would do it to us. Aww. Well, they, they, they certainly would. And it, it takes us to the one other topic I want to cover very quickly here. And that's that you you just don't know whether the, the conservatives on any given uh, you know legislative body or board, you know, are going to just try to stick it to you no matter what, or if they're going to try to kind of stay within the, you know, the limits of the law. And 
yet again, uh, swing conservative justice uh, Hagedorn has gone against Wisconsin manufacturers and commerce in a case about releasing uh, data about COVID outbreaks in businesses. Um, I, I did not see a conservative court going against Wisconsin manufacturers and commerce, but uh, Brian Hagedorn did say that there was, he didn't see where WMC had a case to make there. So again, it kind of depends on the person sitting on these boards. So that's an update on some of the stories we've been following. When we come back, we'll have some updates from Wisconsin schools, starting with Keel and how the bullies won around. Then more about whether schools got a lot of cash from pandemic aid or if they don't have money. And maybe both things can be true. We'll explain next. You're up north. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. Welcome back to the Up North Podcast. We're going to visit now with my friend Denise Gomer Hutchison. Denise is the Northeast Regional Organizer for the Wisconsin Public Education Network, which is a nonpartisan alliance of a whole bunch of people that are committed to ensuring that public schools have the resources and support they need so every child at every public school has equal access and opportunity to learn and succeed in the classroom and beyond. She has a ginormous background in grassroots organizing. She's organized referenda in the school district in Green Bay and uh, leads referendum initiatives through a group called Champions of the Green Bay Schools. And she's also done, just to squeeze everything in, <laughs> she's been part of the Wisconsin Women's Council, the League of Women Voters, the Milwaukee Women's Fund. I'm out of breath here. Denise, I know. welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really 93 years old, so <laughs> it does, you know, staying active in the community can age one. Um, now, Denise is joining us today primarily to talk about where things stand with schools, the funds they're getting from COVID relief and some other sources. Uh, but first, since it's in her corner of the state, we we do have to talk uh, just briefly and generally about Keel. It's a little community that's been through a lot some of it of its own making. It started when allegedly some students wouldn't use the right pronoun for another student. The school district had to look into it. That's the rule. Complaints been filed. But as soon as the kids' parents and a right-wing legal group, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty got involved, well, off to the races we go to right-wing cable TV, and then the bomb threats came in, the school year's cut short, the Memorial Day parade is canceled. Eventually, the school board, which had been taken over in April's elections by conservatives, drop the investigation. So if there was any bullying, there won't be any consequences for it. Denise, school board members are supposed to be advocates for all students, especially those who are marginalized or at risk. But between this action and some other conservative-led school boards in the state, what, what in your mind is this doing to educators and administrators who expect the school board to have their backs? And, and is this all, while serious, taking time away from some of the issues that your network would uh, also knows it needs to be working on. You know, it's it's a really sad statement that every child who walks through the door of a public school can't feel safe and honored and um, be provided an environment to be successful in their learning. And um, we have some real challenges right now. And um, and we have to really address them. And what does that look like? What does it mean? Um, 
every child deserves a safe, secure, and great place to learn and grow and uh, become who they are meant to be. And so our school boards have a need to remember who are they representing? They're representing every single child that walks through the door of that school building, not fringe groups, not special interest groups, but every single child who walks through that school building. And I think that's where our school boards have to get back to is how do we advocate for every single child that walks through the doors of our buildings? And how do we make it a good place, a safe place, and a wonderful place for educators to educate our children? And we, I totally want to move on to the, the real issues with education, but I have to point out and, uh, you know, it's probably been talked about ad nauseum in the last week, but I've been trying to sell beer, so I haven't talked about it enough. But it seems like these bomb threats came as a direct result of, of an issue that was very small being politicized by this uh, law firm, this, this conservative law firm, Will, Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty. They went and wrote a, a Washington Post op-ed or they were referenced in a Washington Post op-ed and they were they made it to the Laura Ingram show. And these it, this this issue was was blown up out of proportion, caught, you know, and, and somebody somebody that was very, you know, probably listens to AM conservative talk radio like at length every day went off his rocker and did this. Um, uh, do you have any thoughts on, you know, the the politic the politicization of 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 school boards in Wisconsin right now seems at its at its at its highest and it's it scares me a little bit. We've seen some pretty significant changes. You know, it used to be a challenge to get somebody to run for school board. You know, it would be somebody got in on the school board and they were there forever. Um, what we can't have happen is fringe groups impact high quality public education. And so it needs to be focused on what is good for that community and what's good for the children in that community and the families and the parents and everybody involved in that community. So, you know, back in the olden days in 2017, <laughs> our legislature, before all of this craziness, it's hard to remember, but our legislature commissioned, it, it put together a blue ribbon commission that was released in 2019. This was a bipartisan commission that was comprised of legislators and education leaders throughout the state. They had eight public hearings across the state. There was a bunch of data that was provided, lots of information, and they came up with some really fantastic recommendations. And then what happened with all of that information? You know, this was an amazing experience. I, I had the honor of testifying at the one that was in Green Bay. And um, we even had a, a, just a group, a huge group of business leaders come out and say, we have great public schools in our community. We need to fund them. We need to take care of them. We need well-educated people to come to work for us. This is an economic win for us to take care of high quality public education. In the Blue Ribbon Commission, they suggested a minimum of 60% funding for special education. They requested um, you know, continued increases in, in public funding. 
they suggested uh, increased in, in um, increase in uh, costs and uh, services for ELL. We are like third from the bottom in the United States in funding for English language learners. And yet some of our major workforces are people who English is not their first language. So, you know, I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. And we, we have to do something about implementing what, that, what came out of that Blue Ribbon Commission. Um, it was really good stuff. It was put together by uh, a nonpartisan group, um, representation from everybody. It was led by Luther Olson and Joel Kitchens, uh, representative from Assembly District 1, and Luther is now left from the Senate. Um, but they had some real opportunities, and they have not implemented those opportunities. Okay. Uh, so, Denise, let's go move on to the confusion about COVID aid. So on one hand, it seems like school districts got a lot of federal funds and they have until 2024 to spend it all. So can you tell us about like some of the good things and maybe some of the bad stuff about, about this COVID aid? Like how have Wisconsin schools, especially small and rural ones up north, been helped? And what are the pitfalls in terms of not being able to use the funds properly or Republican legislators using it as a reason to squeeze local budgets harder? That's a lot of uh, <laughs> bundled into one question. So I'll have to, I'm going to unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Um, COVID relief has a lot of strings attached to it. Um, probably the first and most important one to, to know is that the money has to be spent and upfront by the districts, and then it's reimbursed for actual costs. So that's an important thing to know, you know, so you can't, you know, some of these school districts who are on amazingly tight budgets already can't go out and just say, okay, we're going to put um, brand new bubblers and water, water fountains in our school buildings so that we can um, safely let kids drink from water fountains to the tune of X thousands and thousands of dollars. You know, we're going to go in and put in new heating and air conditioning systems that have air purification systems in them. We're going to change out bathrooms so that we have soap dispensers that can be ac adequately used and take away paper towels and do air dryers. You know, we're going to you know, some have you seen some of our school buildings around the state of Wisconsin? You know, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, so, so, did Wood, so did Woodrow Wilson saw some yeah. of our school buildings. That, <laughs> that's, that's all there. So you're saying that, again, these are things that districts could do. There's this perception that, um, you know, a truck full of, of gold bars with Joe Biden's, you know, face on the side. I mean, that's the way right wing radio makes it sound like is pulling up to every school with these these bags of cash. And you're saying that all of these projects are things they could do, but they got to find the money up front. Right. Well, that's that's impossible. That's they that's, don't have the money. <laughs> right. Especially for the smaller districts. Right. Now, I think DPI has now set up like a, a they, they've put some processes in place where I and I don't know the, the whole policy on that, but I think they're working with that. But it is not like here's 
you know, $887 million, go spend it however you want to. Plus they have to use it. You know, like every school room in the Green Bay School District had to have hand sanitization systems put in. Every, you know, when you're serving 22,000 kids in 43 different buildings, that's a lot of work to put that all in. And, you know, and they have to create safe environments for those children. New, new uh, Chromebooks. So the, the alternative part of that question that I ask is, yes. okay, so if, you know, if I really want to, if I want to be political and I want to mm-hmm. kind of say that Biden is causing inflation because he's giving away all this money to the schools, then I'm going to say I'm going to be a good fiscal conservative and rein in the budgets uh, that we already have, maybe for education or, you know, for city government or potentially is, is, do you see this happening? You see pressure to shrink budgets because the federal government's giving uh, COVID aid, which you just told us can't be spent unless you, you know, put up the money up front. Are you seeing well, that or not? And not only up front, but uh, it has to be specifically for COVID mitigation services. You know, one of the things was mental health services. So I'm going to back up, but Kurt, I remember your question, so I'll come back to it. Um, One of it was mental health services. If you can't find mental health providers to provide those services, you you can't spend that money, you know, for that. So that's a huge piece of it, you know, and and also um, it has to be, what do you do with that mental health program that you put in place, but the money's gone in 2024. So do you just say, bye, mental health provider? Yeah, all the kids' mental health issues are now taken care of. Yeah, right. <laughs> not happening. So, you, you know, need additional I funding. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to make this uh, political because we're nonpartisan. We want to work with everybody to make our public schools the greatest places they can be. But there's some real misrepresented situations out there that um, that we need to figure out. And now I want to go back to your question of, do we see them crunching the funds? Yeah. I mean, did you see this last budget? Did you see that public schools got a $0 increase for the next two years? Oh, no, that's not what I heard. I heard it was a record amount that got put in. What's Where, where, where are they wrong? Well... Pat, when you give a record amount, but you don't increase the two-thirds funding for public education, they can't use that money. So then it's a it's a tax cut to taxpayers, but then school districts have to go to referenda. And so you're asking them to now pay through their taxes to fund public schools. It's quite a, it's it, it's such a scheme, it's 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 almost diabolical that school districts were essentially used as the pass through, you know, to, right. to give a property tax cut. And you can tell people that you gave schools record amounts, but now the school district has actually got to come for the money through local property taxes. And people go, Oh wait, where's all that money you got that you, you, you didn't get. And they're having to levy up for um, vouchers. Well, that's where I was going to go next. Um, and, and I've got some strong feelings about that. I mean, they've, they've been around for, you know, a generation now. I, you know, I, I think they're basically destroying public education. They defund our neighborhood schools. I know I'm supposed to say conservatives prefer free market competition, blah, blah, blah. No, 
No, we've seen the results. They are not that much better. And in some cases, really not that much better than public schools. Private vouchers aren't the the cure-all that they were meant to be. All they're doing is siphoning money off public schools, said Pat Kreitlow. Now, (laughs) Denise, where where is your view of where we are with with voucher schools? And and even, even, even if Democrats regain control of the legislature or other public education advocates, I mean, is it, is it, is that horse out of the barn? We are seeing people having a desire to privatize public education. Right. And we can't let that happen. And, you know, we have school districts in the state of Wisconsin that have about $9,300 to $9,500 per child to spend And we have school districts in Wisconsin that have $14,900 per child to spend. That's a lot of inequity in public schools. Without without a doubt. When you have school districts up north that are sharing the school nurses between school districts, you know, and you have them sharing other services. Right. Denise, I got a, I got a commercial break. I got a hit, but your point's very well made. Thank you so much. And we're going to talk about some other areas we didn't get to next time around. Thanks so much again. We'll be back in a moment. You're up North. Won't you let me die? I'll stand by you. I'll stand by you. Welcome back to the cabin. This is uh, the Up North podcast. I'm Kirk Bankstead along with Pat Kreitlow and Kristen Lyerly. You're soft, Kirk Bankstead, as we found out in the first segment. You're very soft. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you picked that music. It was lovely and soothing. Oh, I'm not taking credit for that. That's Pat. (laughs) Pat's just as soft as I am. You picked the... He picked the, the, the serenade waltzy music for we're, the third we're, we're block. We're going to talk about somebody who stands with other people in this segment. Yes. Right, right. And these people are not soft. So I just have to say, as an OBGYN, it's never a surprise when I talk about women's health because I talk about it all the time. I have boundaries issues. But uh, <laughs> it, it's not just doctors who are concerned about the potential repeal of abortion rights under Roe v. Wade. It's all of us including you might not think there's not as much concern about amongst evangelical Christians, but you'd be very wrong. There's actually a really storied history of clergy involving abortion rights. And Pat, you did a story about this on Up North News. Yeah, we put the story up. It it actually originated with our sister outlets in Michigan and North Carolina. Um, But it, it follows the Reverend Katie Zay, who shares her faith journey from an evangelical upbringing in the South to becoming CEO now of the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. There's a, a narrative out there that's that believes, says most people of faith oppose abortion. And while members of the Christian right have been the most vocal, the most aggressive of measures to restrict access, polling repeatedly finds that a majority of Americans who follow a religious tradition including Catholics, Protestants, and non-evangelicals, support abortion being legal. And our story uh, includes uh, the latest from a Pew survey that found 
66% of black Protestants, 60% of white non-evangelical Protestants, 56% of Catholics support abortion being legal. So we have this interview with uh, the Reverend Katie Zay, a pro-choice pastor who lives in North Carolina now, and talked about how she came to her pro-choice views, why this is central to her faith. Um, she wanted to demystify the intersection of faith and abortion and better understand why so many people wrongly believe that to be religious or follow a faith means you're anti-abortion. Let's hear a little bit of what she told us. When I arrived at the clinic, um, I was assumed to be a patient there to have an abortion, which was a very impactful experience for me because I felt what it felt like to have Christian people like me yelling at me, telling me not to go inside. It was very unsettling for me. I had the most sacred experience of watching the nurses and the doctors and the staff care for patients. And as a result of that tour, I decided I wanted to volunteer there weekly. I felt like I have to find a way to bridge these two worlds because there's a narrative out there about what it means to be a person of faith and to have opinions about abortion and didn't reflect my own. So that really was kind of the origin story of why I, I do this work. So we're going we're gonna to hear more about, uh, from her in just a second, but I wanted to back up and say that uh, this was after she had gone to seminary and that uh, she was on campus providing some pastoral care training in how to accompany someone making a reproductive decision about a pregnancy or who's experiencing a loss. And um, she realized that to do that, you have to go where people are experiencing abortions. Uh, she contacted a local health center. And like she said, it was interesting that here's this devout Christian having all these other so-called devout Christians, you know, yelling at her, basically heckling her, thinking that, you know, she's a woman that's going in for an abortion. She saw about the stigma that's involved. And so in our next clip here, she talks a bit more about that. And then you hear from uh, from one of our reporters, Kimberly Lawson, explaining more about the, the history and the intertwining of how the Republican Party somehow in the 1970s decided to embrace these anti-choice views. Let's listen in. If you look at the sacred text, there's actually very little speaking to this issue of abortion. If anything, there are pro-abortion texts in the Hebrew Bible specifically, and really nothing in the Christian texts. People of faith are often assumed to be anti-abortion, even though the Bible is mum on the issue. In reality, research shows that a majority of Americans who follow religious tradition support abortion being legal. So how do we come to believe that most people of faith oppose abortion? In the 1970s, Republican political operatives realized they could weaponize abortion rights, which many grassroots religious activists already opposed, in order to build a voting bloc comprised of Catholics, Protestants, and Mormons to elect Republicans. That kind of became the central, one of the pieces of the central platform of their white Christian nationalist agenda to get conservative politicians elected. And it's been incredibly successful. The quote, Christian right has spent more than 40 years waging war on abortion rights. And their success obscures the fact that they represent a minority belief in the United States. Because it's been weaponized and intertwined with this really well-orchestrated political machine around this white Christian nationalist agenda, they've done such a good job of amplifying what is really a fringe belief and making it seem like that is the only belief that's out there. When in reality, there is no one understanding of is abortion right or wrong? There's a lot of theological diversity on this, especially among different religious traditions. 
And so one more thing before I uh, ask Kirk and Kristen to jump in here. She says it's a calling from the divine uh, that, uh, you know, it was just so sacred to accompany people through a very vulnerable moment, which for her, as someone who follows the model of Jesus, that's what she sees him doing. He showed up for people during their most difficult moments, offered them care and compassion and love, and he spoke up against unjust laws. So for her, it was a natural fit to do the work. She says, I know some people won't understand, but for me, it makes complete sense. And I'm glad we wove into that story, the polling data that makes her point that, you know, that's a majority viewpoint. It's it's a it's a fringe, it's a non-minority view that's making the most noise and now threatening. 50 years, Chris, of of reproductive rights. Yeah, it's so true. And I think you really captured it in that piece. Um, It's shocking to me how religion has gone so far with this connection to the anti-abortion movement so far in this bizarre direction. Because early on, when Roe first came out, right around the time of Roe, the first consultation service for abortion care was established by pastors and rabbis in New York City. They recognized what was happening to women and families because of this. And they created this. It was published in the New York Times. It was like an ad. If you're in trouble, call us. And these pastors were on call and women would call and they would vet clinics and they would find places for these people to go so they could get the urgent health care that they needed. So religion and abortion have actually been very closely intertwined in this country. And it's only when Paul Weyrich was so clever, he was looking for that issue that he could win that block of voters with. And he's, a, became, he's a right, he's a historic figure in terms of being a right wing political operative. He basically invented political direct mail in the mid 70s. Yes. And he's from Wisconsin, sadly. Mm-hmm. So there's another connection. And he very cleverly used Ronald Reagan, who had incidentally just signed one of the most liberal abortion laws, like pro abortion laws into law in California. But Reagan was always conflicted. And Wyrick recognized how savvy he was and how charismatic he was. And he was able to use Jerry Falwell and Reagan and a number of different leaders to turn this into the issue that it is today. And it is profoundly terrible. And it hurts women and families and communities. So my thoughts on this is... I. I, I mean, I, I'm not surprised to hear the statistics that uh, many, uh, like a majority of Christians in many different faiths, even Catholics, uh, are opposed to uh, overturning Roe. Um, I'm not surprised because I, I've been forced to go to church since I was like, like a baby because my dad always directed choirs and then I've sung professionally in church choirs my whole life. So I've been in church since I was a little kid in Wisconsin, Boston, California, Chicago, uh, and and I've every church I've ever gone to, I'm, I haven't been in the South. And so I was thinking maybe these folks are all in the South because I don't know anything about the South. But every place I've been to in the Midwest, on the West Coast, and in, in the Northeast, preaches helping those that are less fortunate. Exactly like helping those to go through a, a time of trial, being a good, being a good, you know, being, holding somebody's hand, you know, and so that's the Christianity that I know. I, I, helping the meek, 
you know, all that stuff. And so all of this hardcore, like mean Christianity, I just don't understand. And I always thought it must be the South because I just don't understand the South. But it exists in Wisconsin too, but I don't go oh, yeah. to those churches. It, mm -hmm. it, well, and it's like she said in the clip, I mean, what do you know about Jesus? You know, did Jesus walk around and judge people? No, it was the opposite of that. Jesus was like, you're hungry. Here's a fish. Here's a pole. Let me teach you how. So all of this, the way that they've able, been able to co-opt this is just, it's unbelievable. And when you think about it, it doesn't make any sense, but we don't think about it that way. No. Uh, so that that's how politics has crept into something that, again, we're just waiting on a U.S. Supreme Court decision and whether it matches what was leaked or if something else comes of it. Uh, time for one other topic in this segment, and it uh, it also is something from up, up North News. I want to mention, if you wanted to see those clips again uh, or hear them or read the story, go to upnorthnewswi.com or upnorthnewswi. Search for that on, on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram, and we have those clips on there as well. Um, in today's newsletter, I wrote an editorial, which um, turned out to be way longer than I was planning on, but as I was thinking about the January 6th committee hearing, which is going to be in prime time Thursday night. I thought, you know, this is not some kind of a one-off deal. The, this was not just like, you know, a demonstration that got out of hand. It's become clear and will become more clear Thursday night that that was only one part of a concerted effort to basically stage a coup and in other ways to undermine democracy, undermine public confidence in democracy. And so I thought, well, we should remind people of some of the things that have gone on besides the January 6th riot. Um, so guys, I'm going to start this list and I, 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 I hope it doesn't run into the commercial break. There were the early lawsuits rooted in absolutely zero evidence of fraud. Mm -hmm. There was a, we've all forgotten Senator Ron Johnson's uh, circus-like conspiracy-based hearing about a month after the election. There was Ron Johnson, as we talked about on the show here recently, admitting in a phone call that he knew Biden won, but that it would be political suicide to say so publicly. There was Tom Tiffany and Scott Fitzgerald voting to deny the lawfully cast votes submitted and certified by other states. There was Tiffany supporting a Texas lawsuit to disregard voters and simply award Wisconsin's electoral votes to Trump, something for which we wrote an editorial and continue to maintain Tiffany should resign or be expelled for signing on to that lawsuit. There's the fraudulent slate of electors, the fake electors that were put forward in Wisconsin and other states, including Robert Spindell, who was and remarkably still is a member of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. And could be voted to be in charge of the WEC when they vote next week. That's right. There was the three ring circus of conspiracy theorists allowed to perform over and over again for the Assembly Elections Committee. The attack on ballot drop boxes, which Republicans were for until they lost an election and now suddenly they're against. The Republican sheriff in Racine County trying to get Elections Commission members charged with a crime for daring to help elderly voters stay safe during a pandemic. There was Ron Johnson calling on Republican leaders in the legislature to simply take over election administration and ignore the Wisconsin Elections Commission. You now have every major Republican candidate for governor saying they would abolish the Wisconsin Elections Commission, which was created by Republicans when they got rid of the Government Accountability Board because its investigations were getting too close to things that Scott Walker was doing. And then finally, the, the cherry on top, 
the dumpster fire, uh, the incompetence of the investigation done by Michael Gableman. There are too many things to name here, but his team even most recently botched a potential interview by using an unlicensed attorney. So as you can see, this is not one bad day at the U.S. Capitol. This is something where a former president and the leadership of a major American political party are willing to break the law or break the country in order to seize power. We can't wish that away. We can't just turn the page. So I hope people watch and listen Thursday night because you haven't heard everything yet, Kirk. Pat, I have been drinking wine on this show, but <laughs> I'm, I'm always red. But what that last four minutes of this radio show made me beat red because now I'm really mad. Mm -hmm. It's I ridiculous how, what we've had to go through as a country and as a state. Our state is the worst. The, the New York Times listed us as there's more people running, more Republicans running for office that are committed to the big lie in Wisconsin than almost any other state in the union. And it's ongoing. It's an ongoing assault on 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 the truth. And it it it. It makes me red, even though I'm drinking wine. Well, it's big stuff. I mean, it's not like little subtle stuff. I mean, these are big monumental things that are happening. Like I wanted to give you oxygen there for a minute, Pat, as you were reading these things out, because I was like, this is just so much. But we have we're so nice. We have such a hard time talking about politics. And you bring this up in mixed company, even in a careful way. And it, people don't want to address it. They don't want to acknowledge it. They just want to like go back to their corners and, and pretend it never happened. And I think that's the thing that frustrates me the most. Like, this is really happening. We need to talk about it because our democracy is literally at stake and it's happening right here. And, and those, yeah. go ahead, Kirk. And, and people are ginning up to, to capitalize on all this uncertainty out of our elections. It's being ginned up and there, and come November, there's going to be an army of people that are going to say that the elections aren't aren't real and are fraudulent. They're, it's uh, going to happen unless they again. win, unless they win, unless That's they the win. Thing. Then suddenly win. we there weren't good. there wasn't any problem. Kind of kind of like Ron Johnson continues to go after Hunter Biden. Nobody talks about Hillary Clinton anymore. Well, that's because she's not near power anymore. Isn't that coincidental that now Just they're going wait. after Hunter Biden, the, the son of the president? It, it seems so odd. It's, it's Just like wait. tomorrow night, Hillary's emails are going to come back up again. They're going to oh. pull all the old rabbits out of the hat. We are going to go find something more uh, uh, happier to talk about right after we take two minutes to catch our breath to wrap up the show. You're up north. <laughs> Grooving on a Wednesday night. Yeah. And thanks, as always, to our radio hosts, Devil Radio 92.7, The Shaw 101.1 FM, and WAUK 540 AM. You can use the Devil Radio app to catch the show anytime. You can get the podcast version of this show from all the usual places or the show's website, upnorthpodcast.com. And we also put the video version up on the Facebook page of Kirk's amazing Manaqua Brewing Company and on YouTube. And you can find my daily work, as mentioned before, at upnorthnewswi.com. Sign up for our newsletter there um, or check us out on social media as well. Um, so we needed that happy music, didn't we? 
Yeah, so Pat, we got to end on a happy note. And we've talked about a lot of dark stuff uh, today. We talked about the Kiel, uh, you know, the bomb threats on Kiel brought on by right wing misinformation. Um, we've talked about, uh, we've talked about, oh, we didn't talk about, but it's been in all the news. I mean, there was a judge that was murdered uh, by another right wing militia guy uh, who, who had Governor Evers on his on his hit list. That was another thing. That's scary. The kill thing was scary. The the last five minutes of our last segment of you listing on all the assaults uh, on, on our democracy and elections and then potentially what's going to happen in, in November is very scary. Um, it it made me remember that when I was reading the Keel article, there's like the sheriff of Keel or the, you know, the police chief said, you know, there's a lot of darkness in Keel, Wisconsin right now, but what can you do as a community member to be the light? And so that's what I wanted to, to talk about today is that, is that, you know, what can we do to be the light made me remember the most famous inaugural speech given ever by any president in the United States, which was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who had to, he got elected president in 1933, which was the height of the Great Recession. And there was nearly 25% of the labor force was unemployed. The entire banking system of America had collapsed. Uh, the uh, prices and productivity had fallen to one third of their 1929 levels. And uh, factories were shut down, farms and homes were lost to foreclosures, mills and mines were abandoned, and people were going hungry. This was the environment that he got elected. And uh, I always get a little bit, Reverend Kirk gets a little bit uh, emotional, but his leadership in his inaugural address said, this is what he said. So first of all, let me assert my belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. In every dark hour of our national life, a leadership of frankness and of vigor has met with that understanding and support of the people themselves, which is essential to victory. And I am convinced that you will again give that support to leadership in these critical days. We had amazing leadership in a president that said, we need to give people the confidence to not be afraid of what's to come so that they can trust in good leadership, honest leadership, trust that their vote will count, trust that the leaders trust, trust in honesty. And, and so that's what we have to do in Wisconsin and in America is find the leaders like Governor Evers, you know, not not trumping up fear, not making people uh, so afraid that they hearken and vote for an authoritar authoritarian dictator. That's what fear does. So I wanted to, you know, that's my little soapbox tonight, but do you have moments maybe that you can share of, of where people have come to potentially progressive thoughts after getting over their own fears that would potentially lead them to close up and, and, and not believe in, you know, a way forward. 
I think given that, uh, you know, we'd have to fill that in 30 seconds, I'm going to say that Kristen and I are very fortunate. <laughs> we both work in positions where we get positive feedback, uh, her from her patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I get all kinds through through email. Sure, we get some hate mail too, but we get those things that remind us that in in all of our own ways, we, we have been the light to somebody. We have been a leader or helped somebody think about appreciating uh, better leadership. And if, if we can do that, uh, we're going to heal as a nation. So thank you, Kirk. Thank you, Kristen. Thanks, Denise Gomer-Hutchison. Thank you for joining us at the cabin. We hope you'll come on back up north next week. Walking, walking, walking.